Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the Silas to my Paul, Brandon. How you doing, Tony? I uh, do not recognize those as well. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> we're just we're running we're through the Bible. Through <laughs> we're we're getting real close to the end of the Bible, and then I'm gonna have to come up with another shtick. Um, yeah, well, Brandon, I uh, I'm happy to report that I went to a Super Bowl party. I lasted almost till halftime. Wow! And I brought pheasant spring rolls. Wow, how did those go over? Oh, pretty good. I mean, I was real happy. I'd never worked with the rice paper stuff before, but uh, it turned out great, actually. Yeah, they were they were real tasty. Anything you dip in peanut sauce, though. Yeah, that's you true. You could dip like a, a shoe leather in peanut sauce, and it would be good. That's a very good point. That's a very, I'm sure it tasted better in a shoe, though. <laughs> it tasted pretty good. So listen, man. I I get the I get the impression that you might be a little bit of a Super Bowl conspiracy theorist. Oh, I'm not completely a conspiracy theorist, but I, I also think where there's smoke, there might be a little bit of fire every once in a while too. I did see pregame before at the beginning of the Super Bowl, they showed some clip of Roger Goodell, the the commissioner of the NFL, talking to Taylor Swift. Oh, he's he's thanking her for all the extra money he just made this year because of his bonuses. So yeah. I'm sure he's he's talking to her. <laughs> There's I wonder I haven't seen ratings, but I bet it was a highly rated. I mean, it went to overtime and stuff. I did yeah. not watch the second half. I I read the paper and went to bed early. Yeah, it was it was I mean, it, it was a, it was a decent game. It was, you know, well played, well coached, blah blah blah, the same old generic terms. But I mean, I predicted exactly what was going to happen before the game started. It was going to be close. San Francisco is going to be in the lead pretty much the entire time up until the end. It's probably going to go to OT where KC is going to win. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it almost seems scripted. I'm not saying it is. I'm not crazy conspiracy theorist, but I'm saying it does benefit the NFL to be a little bit like the WWE where you know the outcome, you play the game, and then you just control it to, to get the outcome in the end. <laughs> How was it controlled? Like, did the refs throw flags at certain points? No, no, no. I mean, it, it was just it, it was just mistakes. It just feels like it when you have like the same okay. teams over and over again, and it happens to be the same teams bringing in the most amount of money in the NFL. I right, don't know, right? But no, it was it's still fun. It's the only game I actually watched this entire season because yeah, yeah, you know. It is what it is. Well, you hear plenty of sports by engineering all these sports podcasts. So oh, I know. And if I went on the sports podcast and said this, I'd get lamented for sure. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you got to throw this up there in, in one of those Talk North podcasts and just go deep in the conspiracy theories. Hey, man, that doesn't fit their their objective, the sports journalists. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, um, my guest this week, as you know, Brandon, is Fisher Neal. He founded a thing called Hunt, Hunt, Learn to Hunt New York. Sorry, Learn to Hunt New York. And he's an actor in New York City. Um, but he, his, his actual, I mean, how he's making his money these days is he has this incredible uh, endeavor where he takes people out to hunt. And you just, it's just, what caught my attention is it's not something you would think about that um, there's an actor in New York City who takes people from New York City into the woods of New Jersey to deer hunt. Um, but when you hear him talk about it, it's surprising how much opportunity there is. I mean, there's like, for instance, it's a five-month-long season for 
bow hunting and crossbow hunting. And it's an, you can shoot an unlimited number of does because as you might guess in that neck of the woods, there's not really any natural predators of deer, white-tailed deer, except for cars, I guess. So he's made a career out of this, which is a pretty amazing deal. Yeah, no, it's incredibly smart. He he picked the right niche market in the right place to to do something like this. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a great conversation about just how he does it. <coughs> Sorry about that. About how he does it and and um you know, how his clients find them um and and him and how he actually runs a hunt day in and day out. But he's just coming to the end of his season. I think just this past weekend, he had his last hunt of the season. So it, fascinating guy, interesting conversation. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'd love you to share, rate, and review the Reverend Hunter podcast. If you've got ideas for guests or, and or sponsors, you know, drop us a line. You can always get a hold of me through all the socials. And uh, again, thanks for listening. And until next time, here is my conversation with Fisher Neal. Hey, Fisher, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast, man. My pleasure. Happy to be here. I've been um, following uh, following you on, on the socials. And let's talk about um, the hunting actor. That's a funny little niche deal. Like I'm, if I'm the hunting <laughs> preacher... Uh, it might be even more niche to be the hunting actor. Just not probably a lot of New York City-based actors who are also hunters. Yeah, I would have told you that the number is zero, but there I know of three others. Okay. <laughs> but there are a lot of actors in New York, so you know, I guess it was inevitable that there would be one or two more. Yeah. Tell me, how did you find those other two or three? Well, one of them started dating someone who I went to school with and she was like, you guys have to be friends. <laughs> um, and we are. And then um, one of them was one of his friends. And the other guy is just someone who randomly, I think, found me on Instagram. And okay. we just connected. And he was like, I'm a hunter too. And we follow each other. And I've never actually met him in person. Yeah. Um, which came first in your life, hunting or acting? Hunting by a mile. Tell me, I, did you grow up hunting? Yeah, my dad was into hunting. I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he'd grown up in Paris, which is a rural part of West Tennessee. And uh, so, you know, he was into hunting. And so, like, hunting was foundational to my identity since I was a little, little kid. You know, as a five, six-year-old, I couldn't wait to tag along and started tagging along around that time, six or seven, you know, early season archery hunting and dove hunting were the things I could do at first. And then it was like, I couldn't wait for the day that I could take my hunter education course. And um, of course, my dad was uh, all about it and happy to bring all of his sons. I have two brothers, all of us along. And uh, so hunting was a huge part of my life through middle school and high school and um, it was only in high school that I found passion for performing on stage in the theater. I, I was, I started doing like, uh, a lot of impressions actually, oh, just uh, really? like 
at at home i would do like ace ventura impressions and stuff and forrest gump and <laughs> my dad awesome. was like you should take speech class and um so like you know and, and uh, i was pretty active in church at the time and started kind of being in a little bit more of the like public speaking position like leading a service or whatever and so that kind of led me toward um you know i took speech class and then that led to theater and probably one of the biggest things was the high school musical that was done in my i guess my sophomore year of high school it was once on this island and i was just blown away by it and and captivated by the idea that i could maybe do that too so you weren't in it that year you weren't no. in the musical okay no um, and but, my my listeners are going to want to know what brand of um, church was that you were you grew up in. That was a Church of Christ, the non denominational okay. Church of Christ. Um, yeah, which so in, um, uh, in, instruments or you know, there's there's Church of Christ. No instruments. No instruments, um, dude. That's old, that's hardcore. For the older folks, clapping was even a little like. Uh, <laughs> You know, but the youth group, you know, we would clap in songs and stuff. But yeah, everything was a cappella. Oh man, in, uh, in worship and uh, so yeah, pretty pretty traditional in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you did a little preaching there when you were in high school. A little bit, yeah. Okay. You know, like I wouldn't. I did like a couple of times. Like um, I went to this summer program a few times uh, at Blue Ridge Encampment. Um, it was like a you know like sort of like a summer devotional type of thing that was actually with like all ages it was like families mm -hmm. um but the youth would have their own meetings and services and i i definitely led a couple of um services there and um yeah i just had a i had like a strong voice and a presence on stage i wasn't afraid of the audience yeah i um i took preaching class in, in seminary, of course, which is required. And then I, I got invited into an advanced preaching seminar, which was taught by this very august Englishman named Ian Pitt Watson. Mm. And he told us that he said any great preacher could have been a great actor and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, so that was really part of his, uh, the way he trained us in preaching was to kind of carry the room, you know, that um, the way you, you, you know, you, you stage actors do, what do you, don't you have to kind of, um, what's it like, um, act to the back row of the theater? Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, you have to modulate your performance to the size of the space. So in thinking of exactly that, like what is the farthest away member of the audience and how will they be able to actually understand what you're doing? So, you know, the one extreme is on camera work where the audience is six inches from your face. And the other extreme would be a, you know, huge touring house with 2000 seats in the, audience members like 500 feet from you mm -hmm. um you know things that you would do for in one make no sense in the other right um, vocally physically you know in on camera it's mostly about what happens on your face but to the back of a theater that's big they can't even see your face man 
you know. Right, right. We, we I was just trying to explain this to my kids because um, over the holidays we went to see a Christmas Carol at the Guthrie Theater, which is our big regional theater oh, yeah. here in the Twin Cities. Yeah, and um, great theater. And but I was, you know, I was saying to them because, of course, they're they're um, my kids are in their late teens and early twenties, almost totally unfamiliar with the stage and so familiar with screens, you know, mm. and watching people on screen and saying, well, it might seem campy or hokey because it seems like they're overacting, but they're trying to fill this enormous room with, yeah, 1,500 seats or whatever and and make sure everybody can hear them and see them. And um, that's that's the difference between acting on the stage and acting on a screen. Yeah. I actually um, did some work at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Uh-huh. And um, that is probably the most extreme thing I've seen. That's a 3,000-seat house. And um, there it is. And even the closest audience member is like, you know, on the other side of an entire orchestra from you. So in wow. that, everything you're doing, um, I was performing as a non-singing actor. Everything that you're doing is entirely body language communication, you know, yeah. in, in a pretty exaggerated way. So how'd you get from, um, from, you know, watching that musical in 10th grade to being a working actor in New York to take me on that journey a little bit? Well, I wish I could say that I am a working actor. I'm, I'm still an actor, but I don't work a lot. But, um, the basically next year I auditioned for the musical theater class and, you know, boys that want to be in music musical theater class were not numerous at the time. So I got immediately in the class and was playing the lead role in Bye Bye Birdie the very next year. Wow. Um, I'd never even had a singing lesson. And that role had seven solos and a duet. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. It was, but it you'd was grown honestly, up singing. You'd grown up singing acapella harmonies in church. So you had, had a little, you had little practice. I had done that, but this is a totally different ball game. Right. Uh, and, and like, yeah, it was, it was honestly like one of the most terrifying things I ever did before mm-hmm. I went on. You know, like I used to, for the first couple of years of doing it, I ended up playing the lead in Oklahoma the next year in high school. And both times before the show opened, I had like an emotional meltdown. Um, because wow. the pressure was just so intense. I'm going to screw it up. Right. And like, you're, is that raw stage fright? But by the end of Oklahoma, especially I was, I was hooked on it. You know, it's such a thrill to be in front of the audience. And I started to have enough, um, sort of confidence in myself that I thought, okay, I can do this, but it was really just a hobby at that point. It wasn't until I got into my freshman year of high school that it, I mean, excuse me, of college that it started to seem like, okay, well, I'm actually like, at least for around here, I'm now all of a sudden a big fish in a small pond, like I'm getting asked to do things. And um, all of a sudden, it was like, oh, maybe I could actually do this for a living. And um, I just kept on going down that road. And the further I went down the road, the further it seemed to be that I could go. Um, You know, I spent a summer at this um, 
fancy uh, festival called Williamstown after my freshman year of college. And, uh, you know, I got cast in a play, even though I was just like, basically the apprentices there are like, you pay to be slave labor. Oh, wow. um, and you get a few classes, but you're like hanging out with like big time people. Um, you know, there were like movie and Broadway stars in this play that I was mm -hmm. in. Um, so that very much like sort of uh, pushed me through in college. So in college, I was just like insanely dedicated to developing myself as a singer, as a dancer, as an actor, so that I could try to be this sort of multi-threat performer and um, ended up after college. So I did like summer stock jobs every summer. And then after college, I started doing non-union gigs around, mostly like tours of things. Okay. Um, I did like this terrible, like bizarre children's theater knockoff of Beauty and the Beast um, <laughs> that like went all over the like North and Eastern half of the United States. Okay. Um, very much a rite of passage, you know, they, they pay you like 200 bucks a week. Um, and you drive around, you know, you drive eight hours to Buffalo and then you perform for like 800 fourth graders with a set <laughs> oh, that you built that morning. And then you pack it up into a truck and uh, six of you drive, you oh, know, gosh. another eight hours to Schenectady and stay in like the crappiest nights in you've ever seen. And then do it again for like three, four months. I did a Renaissance fair. I did Pennsylvania Renaissance fair. I did Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey's tour where they do um, little, they do uh, Shakespeare shows for yeah. school age kids around New Jersey. It, it makes me, it makes me think of Station Eleven a little bit. Have you ever read that? Have you read that? I've novel? never read it. I've heard something about it it's like being stuck in greenland or antarctica or no something. these guys are these guys are this is like a post-apocalyptic deal and it's like a traveling shakespeare like oh, the entire like society is broken troop. down yes and there's no you. like there's nothing there's no electricity there's no there's hmm. no planes don't fly there's no gas you know and they're going from like little encampment from one to the next yeah performing shakespeare and just like trying to keep it alive you know yeah yeah it, it is quite a bit like that making barely anything you know but um you know at, when i got towards after doing that for a couple of years i decided i wanted to try and sort of uh move up the ladder of of jobs and the quickest way to do that is if you can get into one of the top graduate programs so there's these graduate acting programs and mm -hmm. NYU and Yale and Juilliard, um, UCSD, there's a few others, but if you can get into one of those, you can come out of it on the other end, especially in the New York market, like with an agent and able to audition for like network TV shows and off Broadway or even Broadway sometimes. Um, so that's what I was able to do. I was accepted to the master's program at Yale and I spent three years there. And um, that's really where the the combination of hunting and uh, acting started to become a potential future business idea. Because hmm. when I went there, I was really fearful that I was going to be in a situation where everybody thought I was like this evil, bad man who murders poor, innocent animals, you know? Uh -huh. um, yeah, yeah. 
But, um, you know, Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, had recently come out in the last few years. And um, man, everyone who I encountered, once they understood for sure that I was eating all this meat, um, suddenly I was actually really cool. And people thought this hmm. was amazing and they want to learn about it and to, to know about it. And I had like a 20 person list that I would email to when I was going to go, particularly turkey hunting, because it was easy for someone to tag along. And uh, I would offer for people to come and uh, several people did. And so when I moved to the city and was looking for uh, ways to make a living that weren't bartending or waiting tables, I just thought there's got to be more people in a city of this size who would be willing and interested enough to pay somebody to teach them what is we all know as hunters is an incredibly steep learning curve. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. You know, if yeah. you don't have a, you know, a family member or a very close friend um, who's willing to make some sacrifices and share it with you that uh, there's almost no way in. So yeah, you know, man, it, it it's super intimidating. I talk to people about this all the time. It, it's, um, and I, I started hunting as an adult. I didn't have the benefit of growing up hunting like you did. Um, oh, no. so, yeah, so I had to make my way into it and, uh, I have a, you know, I have a pretty forceful personality and, um, I'm not afraid to ask people for things, but for, I think for a lot of people, they're just like, I don't even, you know, I don't even know where you begin, but I, I guess like when you, so when you go to New York, then sure there are people who might want to hunt but good lord what an overwhelming thing to think like how do you even market that like how do you let people know that this is even available well the beautiful thing about the time we live in now is that it's possible to be found by people who are looking for such a thing hmm. you know in my research prior to starting the business i would google search queries like learn to hunt, learn to hunt near me, learn to hunt in New York. And there are, okay. there were zero relevant responses. Really? You know, I mean, the, the stuff you would get would be like one random article from like three years ago on outdoor life magazine or, or like a real tree <laughs> camo magazine on how to get started as a hunter. Uh -huh. You know, nothing at all relevant and certainly nobody offering what I was looking to offer. So at that point, it was just a matter of uh, paying for a, you know, a website service. I use Wix and as part of that package, they have uh, a search engine optimization functionality so that you can get your site listed and able to be found on Google. And since there's no other relevant, you know, competition, um, once I got that going, I was the top hit and I, I wow. should still be the top hit if you search on Google, like learn to hunt New York. And of course I named the business that as well so that it would be, um, you know, more easily found. And, uh, so that's still where, probably 80% of my business comes from is just organic search. People start wow. searching like, where can I learn? Where can I find a hunting guide around here? And, um, and they find me that way. I mean, in some ways, Fisher, you'd think people when they, if they, if they're moving to New York city, they would probably like forsake the idea of hunting. Like, well, I'm moving to New York. I'll, 
I'll probably never hunt. You I know. did. I, yeah. I, that was my thinking. I mean, you know, I was, that was one of the things I was really torn about it in terms of whether or not I would pursue acting as a genuine, like if I was really going to go for it, cause you have to live around here and, um, here or LA or something. And, uh, I just thought, well, hunting will become something that I do once or twice a year when I go home for the holidays. And, uh, it turns out that, uh, well, I just didn't know really how much was possible. And I did a lot of research and I ended up actually moving to New Jersey. Um, I spent 10 years living in Jersey city, which is, uh, for those who don't know, it's right next to Hoboken. And uh, there's a, a non subway, a different type of commuter train called the path train. It's just like the subway. I could get into Manhattan and Greenwich village in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet by being in New Jersey, there was two key things. One is the firearms rules were much more reasonable. And the most important thing was that there, within an hour drive of Jersey City, there is probably, gosh, pushing 100,000 acres of public land you could deer hunt on. Wow, okay. Um, and in, in that entire area, the deer numbers are high enough that the bag limits are unlimited does. Holy smokes. Months. And what's and, the, what's the hunting pressure like on that public land? Uh, it's high. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, so you got to learn how to work it and not all of the public land is getting pressured in the same ways, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a ton of deer and, you know, you can hunt them for five months and you can bait them. So it, it was kind of wow. a no, no brainer that, uh, you know, whereas if I lived on the New York side, the places where you can hunt are like, you've got to drive probably about two hours west on Long Island. There is quite good public land deer hunting out there. Um, then, uh, you know, or drive like two hours north up into like the lower parts of upstate New York. Um, but, you know, it's a longer drive. It's hard to do that as a day trip. Going yeah. north, you would definitely be paying bridge tolls. Um, so it, it didn't make sense to go into New York. So uh, yeah, I ended up in Jersey and just like the, um, New York giants and the New York jets, <laughs> right? I am actually in New Jersey and I market to New York. Gotcha. Well, I, yeah, I did my doctoral work in Princeton. So I took the, I took the New Jersey transit mm. train a lot of times right through that stretch because I I'll, always would fly out of Newark, of course, and there yep. are plenty of people who, I mean, really rich people who live in Princeton and oh, yeah. train into New York City to make their millions every day. Um, All over North yeah. Jersey, man. It's full of like big time upper 1% stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's interesting. So, um, I, I, you know, of course, <laughs> I think of, like uh public hunting land in New Jersey and all I can think of is that one episode of the Sopranos um <laughs> uh where Polly and Chris Christopher get stuck do you remember that they get stuck in a car with like a Ukrainian no. dude and they try to hunt him down in the woods and they're snowy it's snowing out and uh Tony and Pussy have to go rescue him I don't know if you're a Sopranos guy but I, I I tried to get my wife into it so we could watch the series and and uh, unfortunately she 
Oh. She didn't love it enough for us to keep going. No, my wife would never watch The Sopranos with me, but I'm telling you, man, if if you get the chance, you just got to find that one episode mm. where they, they go, uh, they're out in the woods in New Jersey. <laughs> trying to, they're all bad guys because I can't say like the good guys are trying to hunt down the bad guys because everybody in that show is a bad guy, you know? Right. Um, which is so what's so genius about that show. But uh, anyway, that's my little TV acting hunting scene. Um, <laughs> and among Sopranos fans, there's like all sorts of memes about that um, because this one big gangster pussy puts on a, a blaze orange vest and takes out a hunting rifle. And <laughs> they're all like, what are you doing? He goes, oh yeah, I grew up, I hunt deer. I grew up hunting deer. And they're, they all look at him like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, yeah. they, they shoot yeah. people, not deer. Those guys. <laughs> yeah. Why would you be so cruel? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. I got some, I got some, in, I got some questions for you because I've, I've mentored people. Um, what do you do about like, I mean, there's, it, it's one thing to take somebody out and teach them how to fish, but hmm. taking them out to hunt, there's like firearms, you're climbing in trees. There's liability. Like mm. those must have been some rather big hurdles to clear. Yes and no. I mean, it all depends on um, how much risk you're willing to take on. You know, the whole liability thing. Yeah, it's definitely there. Um, but uh, you know, I didn't really have any assets you could take when I started this business. <laughs> right, um, okay. You know. Um, and sometimes you just gotta take some risks. Now, of course, I have like an LLC and liability insurance, and it's and I and I have people sign a waiver, so yep. Um, yep. you know it's not too big a deal. Um, but certainly, you know, the firearms thing is uh, it's it's not that bad because like kind of my main format that I use if somebody says, "Oh, I want to hunt. I've never hunted before." If they don't have time, if it's not preseason to take a lesson with me, um, we essentially do a day that is starts with lessons and ends in a hunt. So okay. you know, I'll spend an hour or two hours on the shooting range going through safety and how to shoot the gun well. Or I mean, honestly, we do more with a crossbow than we do with a oh. gun. And that's okay. that's a big thing. Big, big thing for um hunter recruitment. It's using crossbows. Why is but, that? Wait, let I want to. I want to ask you about that. What huge. What do you think that's about? Is it Is it fear of firearms? Uh, there's a number of factors. Fear of firearms is one. Um, a lot of people living in cities. Not only are there stigma around firearm ownership, either for themselves or they're worried about other people, or like my friends who live in New York City, it's a big hassle. That's expensive mm -hmm. to even own a deer rifle and have it in your house. Okay. Um, but the more important thing is the number of available days when they could go. Oh, gotcha. Because the, the rifle season is so much shorter. People are busy, man. Yeah. And like, yeah, rifle season in New York, I think it's two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, in New Jersey, there's a, a fairly long shotgun season. We don't do rifles, unfortunately, but, uh, the shotgun season is like six weeks, seven weeks. Okay. Um, and so from a hunter recruitment standpoint, right? Like the people who can kind of like afford to try it out and get into it are people typically who are, you know, re fairly recently out of college and have a decent job and or a young family, um, and getting time 
to set that aside when that can happen is very sporadic. You know, a lot, most of my clients can only get away for a day or two to actually do a hunt. So, you know, for some of them that falls in September and some of that, that, that falls in February. And if those dates are not available to them when they can go, then they just can't. And so, you know, a compound bow and certainly any traditional bows is something that requires a lot of dedication, a lot of uh, pre-thought, a, a lot of investment ahead of time. Um, whereas a crossbow, I can literally just say, yeah, come out with me and I'll show you how to shoot it and we'll go hunt a deer and you can try it and see um, if you want to go further. You know, it's so, so much easier. Um, and there's just so much more time. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have wondered at times because I, you know, following you on Instagram, I'm like, dang, he's still shooting deer. How is he still shooting deer? But you know, say if, crazy. if the New Jersey season is five months long and obviously with an abundance of deer and like no doe, you know, no limit on does, um, I suppose not much for natural predators other than human beings Cars. with those deer. But here's my, my, I got a question. It's funny because it, here in Minnesota, crossbows have suddenly become very controversial because the, the Minnesota legislature passed a law saying that crossbows count during archery season. And you can use a crossbow anytime during mm. archery season, which is quite a bit longer, as you might guess. I mean, we have archery for like two months, like all September and October, and mm. then you have two weeks of firearm, and then you have muzzle loader, and all through that time, archery season is still going on till the end of right. the year. Right. Um, and the traditionalists have gotten real upset about the legislature kind of, without even checking with the Department of Natural Resources and Wildlife Biologists and stuff. They just were like, let's have more people hunting. And what's interesting is, Interesting little side note is we have a bit very big Hmong population, you know, people who What's are displaced that? from Cambodia during um, ah, the yes. Vietnam War. A lot of them settled in Minnesota. They love to hunt deer. Mm. And it was Hmong legislators from the Twin Cities who, mm. you know, I, they must have heard about this from their constituents. They pushed for this law, it was passed. And now a lot of hunters are up in arms because they're like, no, no. It's too easy to kill a deer with a crossbow. Um, that's not archery hunting, other than, of course, people who have, you know, handicaps or shoulder injuries and they can't pull back a compound bow or whatever. So what do you think about that, um, that argument that crossbow hunting makes it too easy during archery season? I hate that argument, even though... <laughs> Okay. Even though the reality of it is true, that it makes harvesting a deer easier. The reason that I hate that argument is because it's selfish. Hmm. Because it's like a hoarding mentality of like, those resources are for me. Um, and I want to hunt in a certain way that is about my ego more than anything. Yeah, That's, that's my point of view on um, like the 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 real motivation behind people using that as the um reason why you shouldn't hunt with a crossbow you know they'll say um they'll say that they seem to think that people will take 
worse shots, like that you'll end up in like with more crippled deer because of the crossbow. Um, and they will say that like, yeah, it's a, like an unfair competition, right? They're like, I don't want someone to shoot a deer uh, too easily that, that I won't be able to shoot. Right. Um, but, you know, they could turn around and go get a crossbow. Um, there's nothing preventing them from doing that. So, you know, it, it really, to me, comes down to, in terms of whether or not they're being utilized, uh, how big of a need do you have to have new people hunting? Um, as far as I know, we have a major crisis on our hands in terms of the number of people participating in hunting. So for that reason, I would say that, you know, we should be expanding crossbow hunting wherever it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, in Western states where you have higher demand for the hunt than there is resource, obviously there a lower success rate makes sense because we want to allow more people to be able to participate and we want to be able to fund those uh, fish and game agencies through that participation. So adding crossbows that would increase the harvest rate, I think would be um, probably not the best idea. Um, but in places where we have lots of deer and we're not worried about the harvest rate going up um, in those places, it's silly not to. Um, and also, I, I also have come to feel like, you know, a lot, so many people make the argument that crossbows are less ethical, like, like less morally uh, superior, they're morally right. inferior to yes. using the bow. And, and I actually have a real problem with that because, you know, I've been bow hunting since I was 14 or 15. And, um, you know, it's, it takes a lot of time to be able to shoot well enough on the hunt in order to always, always make a good clean kill on the deer. And even when I am practicing, I screw up sometimes. Yeah. Um, when I'm shooting a crossbow, I'm, I'm not shooting past 40 yards because I'm worried about the speed of the projectile and the deer moving, even though I have the accuracy. Um, and I hit exactly what I want to hit every single time. Hmm. And those deer die quick every single time. Really? Um, you know, I take people who've never shot a bow or a gun in their life and they don't all do perfectly on the hunt, of course, but most of them make a quick, you know, ethical kill on the deer that, uh, you know, it's just, I feel like there's a strong argument to be made that it's more responsible and morally mm -hmm. superior to use the most effective weapon, weapon available. Um, and, uh, you know, like in the UK, they don't allow archery hunting because, uh, they don't consider it to be as effective as rifle hunting. Yeah. So it really is, I think people who are in a closed loop of ideation within uh, a particular culture that they've grown up with in the United States, you know, and they're not allowing themselves to see outside of, uh, you know, that closed loop. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. And I, um, it's interesting because I, I've only been a rifle hunter and I, you know, people, oh, you got to try, you know, bow hunting. It'll change your hunt. And, and I've said I will once my kids are out of the house and my last kid is just now left for college. So this might be the year, but it's, I got to tell you, man, it's very tempting to get a crossbow because uh, not just because it's easier, 
but because I have yet to lose a deer that I've shot with a rifle. And I'm fortunate in that. I've only been deer hunting for 10 years. But um, it does worry me that I would, um, yeah, that I'd cripple a deer but not recover it. And I think there's less chance of that if I were to use a crossbow. There's definitely less chance. It's yeah. orders of magnitude harder with the compound bow. Yeah, yeah. Um, you must, because of what you get to do, you must have amazing stories of of people you've taken out on their first hunts. What what's that like? Take me on a day when you take somebody out uh, after you've taken them to the rifle range. Are you sitting in the in the stand with them? Are like what's mm. what's the process? So most commonly, what I'm doing is I'm hanging hang-on stands back to back on a tree. Okay. Um, and since a lot of it's public land, I'm, I'm like carrying climbing sticks in and out so nobody can steal or mess with my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so we sit back to back on the tree and I, um, I spend a lot of time at the shooting range portion explaining the various scenarios that can happen to try and reduce the amount of talking that I would need to do if and when a deer comes in. Oh, interesting. Um, sure. I've, I've learned over time that like, you know, like I used to, I used to just try and coach in the moment and say, okay, pick up the bow or, you know, wait. And what I found is that it's really difficult for me to, for that whole explanation to happen and for them to understand what to do in the moment. Cause it's like, you know, you need to pick up the bow when the deer's head is behind that tree. And in that one yeah. little second, you need to know that that's what you've got to do and when. Um, so I spend a lot of time prepping people, you know, after we do just basic shooting on the range, I'll have this long conversation about, you know, this is what it means when a deer is bobbing its head and looking our way. This is what it means when a deer is stomping its foot. Mm -hmm. And these are the different ways that a deer will decide that it wants to leave, right? And how you can potentially still succeed in that scenario. And then, um, you know, and a lot of time talking about shot placement and what the different outcomes might be. And, uh, so then we get up in the stand and I'll sort of put them through a process of, you know, here's the range finder, get your landmarks situated and, uh, now practice aiming at everything so that you know how you can get steady, you know, aiming to this spot or that spot. What, what can you, can you not do what's in the way? Um, and then, you know, try and tell me if there's a deer coming, don't point at it. I can't tell you the number of times people point, <laughs> they'll say, I see a deer and I say, where? And they like pick up their arm and point and they're like, it's 40 yards right over there. I'm like, what are you doing? No. <laughs> um, but you know, people see so many deer around like the suburbs, you yeah. know, they don't even care about people. They right. don't realize that deer where you can hunt are a totally different, you yeah. know? thing um you know and then when the deer come i have you know everything that runs the gamut you know some people are like totally calm and just like execute the thing perfectly and seem to not even get uh, an adrenaline rush and then i get other people who were shot great on the range and now they like panic you mm. know 
Um, and they can like, I can hear them breathing and see them shaking. And it's like hardcore buck fever for like a, you know, button buck that's standing on a pile <laughs> right. of corn in front of them. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, and, um, like, you know, completely missing sometimes because yeah. of that stuff. Um, you know, I've occasionally had people who, uh, freaked out because of, uh, fear of heights. Um, I now have like a questionnaire that I'll have people answer before we go on the hunt. So I know if they have fear of heights, I can put them in a ground blind. Sure. Um, okay. Though sometimes I really like to show people that you don't need a tree stand. So, um, a decent number of times I will just hunt from the ground, like next to a big old oak tree or next to a blowdown or something, if it's the right situation. Um, hmm. and certainly once the leaves get off the trees, you know, you're not, always doing yourself that much good by being up in the tree where the deer can uh, silhouette you so easily, especially with yeah. two dudes. It's really right. hard to hide two dudes, <laughs> um, especially when one doesn't know how to stay still yeah. <laughs> very well. Um, so, you know, like I've had really good luck, like sitting in a boulder field or up against a big tree and, you know, just setting it up so the deer just don't notice that we're there. Yeah. Yeah. And then are you, uh, your field dressing the deer? Are you, well, let me ask before you even get to that. Do you, when you come down out of the stand with a client, it, it must be a very emotional for some of them. Definitely. Are, do, do you do any kind of ritual or is there any, when you approach the deer, is there a way that you do that? Or is it a case by case basis or what? I, you know, I kind of like, like a lot of parts of hunting, you know, I kind of have gone back and forth as to what I do or what I've done with a lot of people over the years is, um, I adopted this Austrian ritual of, uh, the last meal. Hmm. Um, so we kind of like break off, a take some grass or a green leaves or something and place it in the deer's mouth and then just take a moment to say, thank you. Um, you know, I used to be pretty serious about always doing that. Um, but, uh, a lot of the time it's like, you know, half an hour after dark and I'm, you know, 45 minutes from the butcher who's also an hour from my house. And I'm just like wanting to get this done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it's kind of like, it kind of varies and, and it does depend on the person, you know, some people, some people react to it in a visibly emotional way. Um, and so I'll move slower, take some more time, yeah. lead them through something like that. Um, because it is shocking for a lot of people, you know, especially to walk up on the animal and be like, wow, you know, as we all know, as hunters, like it's, it's a, different experience to walk yeah. up on an animal well, that you I have just killed i just killed something yeah i mean yeah it's it's it was such a common experience for our ancestors who probably you know killed animals weekly for food yeah you know farm animals or or wild animals and you're taking people from new york city who've you know they've seen a squashed squirrel on the ground or something but they slapped a mosquito on their arm but they're not in the habit of killing things. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, um, and then, yeah. Do you, uh, 
Do you field dress it? Do, do you make them field dress it? Is it a combo? Because that's such. I mean, I think I think when I shot my first year, my most visceral memories are of the field dressing even more mm. than the shot and the kill. Mm. Yeah, it's it is something that holds a lot of weight for people. Um, some people don't want to do it. Um, um, which is fine with me because I can do it in about four minutes mm -hmm. and, uh, teaching them to do it takes usually a half an hour. Um, but most people want to do it, um, either out of a sense of obligation or because they want to learn. I actually get the number one thing I hear from people about why they don't feel comfortable trying a hunt on their own is not what they found in the fish and game polls about land availability. It's they're afraid that they won't gut the animal correctly and that they'll ruin the meat. That is, I hear it yeah. from almost every single person. That's interesting. Yeah. And um, it's, it's especially interesting because it's very much a fallacy, right? Like worst case scenario, you cut open the stomach and, you know, maybe there's a funky taste on some of your meat. But like the only thing you can do wrong is just not do it. Yeah. Um, and it's not rocket science, you know, like cut it and get the stuff out. You'll figure it out. Right. But uh, people have a lot of fear around it. So uh, most of my clients really want to learn. And so they'll either say, no, 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 like uh, just guide me through it and I want to do it myself or let's do it together. Um, that's what I've been doing more lately um, is like, you know, I'll, I'll kind of do it with them and make a couple of the cuts here and, or start a cut so that they see how the mm -hmm. cut is supposed to go. Um, and, uh, I found that that's the, I think the best hybrid of where they're like hands-on and learning, but yes, it also doesn't take like half an hour, 40 minutes because they, you know, can't figure out how, how to make a cut. Right, right, right. Oh man. Well, that's, that's must be a very intense experience. Do you have people coming back and saying, I want you to take me on my second hunt as well. I'm not quite ready to do it myself. Yeah. The thing that really doesn't surprise me anymore, but when I first got going with the business that surprised me the most was that the majority of my sales are repeat clients. Oh, um, interesting. You know, it's a number of things. Um, part of it is the fact that yes, the learning curve is really steep. Um, and so people, feel like they have more to learn, you know, and, but also, you know, you've got people who have uh, really busy lives and live in a city environment. Some of them live in Manhattan. Um, and so like the time and effort it would take them to do the scouting, to set the thing up, to have their own equipment um, is actually pretty out of reach. So yeah. it becomes, I actually just become their like, you know, one to three days out of a year they book me to get their deer um and then they come back next year wow um especially because they learn you know pretty much between september and the middle of november i mean we knock them down we we do really well i bet so, you do well based on your instagram yeah and yeah. I, i'm guessing though for i mean this is speculation but you can tell me if i'm right or wrong you know for Hunting is also, um, I mean, there's a communal aspect to it. it. It's something that people like to share. And it, mm. 
you know, if, if one of your clients doesn't have anyone else to go hunt with, they're probably like, well, I'd like to go back out with Fisher. Like I had a good time with him and you know, it's true. Uh, yeah. It's true. Certainly some of my clients have been regular enough that they start to cross over into the friend zone. Yeah. 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 So have you got like, how's business? Do you have more, more queries than you can manage or, you know, and you're it's obviously good. only doing it five months a year. So it's not like, um, you, it's a year round business. Yeah. I'm kind of like a, like a commercial fisherman or something, you know, yeah, for, yeah. I'd say for three to four months of that season, I am working nonstop seven days a week for wow. extended hours, either with clients or prepping for clients. Mm -hmm. Um, in September, in those first three months, September through, well, really even into December, I do typically have more um, inquiries than I can manage. And so I have a couple of guys on staff who will, I'll bring them in, like say if I have two people or three that want to hunt together, um, each person on these, you know, even if it wasn't the law with the apprentice license, I would want one-on-one -on -one mentorship yeah. for sitting yeah. in the blind. Um, and they do too. So I'll hire them for that. And, but I'll also hire them to run hunts on their own. And then like now things typically slow down, you know, January, February, fewer people are thinking about hunting. My regulars have all already gotten their deer. So, um, you know, it ranges from like two to three a week to, you know, like my last one, I've just got one this week on Saturday. That's, that'd be my last deer hunt of the season with a wow. client. Dang, that is a long season. Holy smokes. Yeah. And uh, on do, you, do you stop going on auditions when you're in the height of deer hunting season? I still audition. It's do you? very, it's oh very challenging. Um, but uh, the one thing that I really don't do is I don't, in the summer, I don't audition for theater shows that happen in the fall. Okay. Um, because theater hardly pays anything and is out of town and is a 50 hour work week. So, you know, it's going to pay like seven, 800 bucks a week. And I, that's what I'm charging per day. Right. You know? right. Um, so I basically forsake theater for that time frame. but I, and, and the main acting stuff I'm trying to do anyway is film and television. Cause that's the only place you can really like get the spark to your career. Uh -huh. Um, and that's the only place you can make a decent wage, um, for the most part. So, but yeah, so I audition for stuff and it can be really hard sometimes, you know, I'll get an audition that's sent to me on like Friday afternoon and it's due Monday morning and I have two full day deer hunts, you know, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, so the sleep factor, the literal ability to even sit and read the audition pages can be really challenging. Dang, dude. Um, if I were to get that job, I would just like try and cover it with staff or reschedule or whatever, because this, the types of auditions I'm taking, if I got the job, most all of these jobs would be like career changing opportunities. Yeah. Um, and pretty, pretty uh, remunerative. Most of yeah, them. Yeah. 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 The one um, big break. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically where I'm at in my career. And a lot of why I'm not a working actor is because it's like, if you just continue doing like the theater out of town, um, or the like one line role on whatever TV show you don't, you hit a glass ceiling 
that you cannot rise above. I believe um, it. The yeah. only way to get past it is to just keep on swinging and only taking auditions for really big stuff. So like, you know, like my agent won't submit me for any type of, you know, under five minute role on television. They yeah. won't submit you, you've, me for, you've done your law and order dead body. I've done it. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> Ever. I've done, I did three. I did, um, I did blind spot, um, which is the, the tattoo lady who uh -huh. was like, uh, had amnesia. That one was fun. I, I had three days on set as a hitman. Um, three scenes shot two people and then got shot okay. and then uh i did person of interest which was literally it was one day and it was like sir there's people inside the facility and they're like okay go <laughs> and then uh, my law and order was probably my best one it was one day on set but it was like a legitimate like really dramatic scene with the lead actors in two scenes um but yeah like nothing like that i anything moving forward it needs to be like i'm a guest star where it's like, I'm the bad guy or I'm, right. you know, a really important character with an arc. Um, you have to get a couple of those for things to really open up yeah. in your career. Or you've got to get like, you know, off Broadway major role, like in a show that everybody likes. That's kind of the other way in the Broadway stuff is either you're an understudy um, or you're already a star, you know? Oh, Interesting. Every, sometimes they get really big casts and you can get in as a small role and that would be worth it. Um, but that those opportunities are just uh, incredibly rare and I haven't, yeah, yeah. haven't landed one. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this, man. It's, it's fascinating. And um, I, I don't know. Yeah. When I first ran across your stuff, I just thought, well, that is, that's an interesting niche. I've got a, I, I'm, you know, familiar with New York City. At one, one of my kids currently lives in Manhattan, and, um, oh yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's uh, to get people from New York City out into the woods to shoot a deer, is uh, well, that's a calling, and I, I'm glad you're doing it because. You know, that's it's it's people like you bringing new hunters into the fold that's going to keep it alive. Hopefully, hopefully so. Hopefully so. I mean, I I really feel like it's an all hands on deck kind of situation. You know, it's going to take both volunteerism and people like me. You know, yeah. because you know, I I have the blessing that I am getting to hunt all the time, and I'm doing what I love for work, but it's also, you know, it's the time when I most would like to be recreating, um, and hunting just for myself. Yeah, of and, course. And yeah. I pretty much, you know, when it comes to like shooting a big deer, I ruin all of my spots in order to yeah, put right. clients on people. And, and, yeah. uh, you know, I would much rather somebody shoot, you know, their first deer as a doe and blow up a spot where I know there's an old buck, then keep that spot just for me in the hopes that I'll get that deer. You know, you, yeah. you have to be willing to sacrifice to a certain extent. Um, and, uh, that's, yeah, that's where I think the professional aspect of being a mentor is valuable. And it actually, I feel like it's being discouraged and should be encouraged that more people could, um, professionally mentor people um 
because mentorship really does take so much time away from hunting. Yeah, man. I mean, I appreciate what you're doing. And I've, I've, I've had people ask me, can I pay you to teach me how to hunt? And I have never done it. Um, but I've thought about it and you're right. I think there are people who kind of look down on what you do and think, Oh, it should be purely altruistic. And um, yeah, I get comments like that on my Instagram. They're like, Oh, I I thought you did it just out of the goodness of your heart. Um, and it's like, well, I mean, I have to make a living at something. And if I'm getting paid to do this, I can do it a lot more. I I would wager that I'm the most prolific mentor of hunters in America. Hmm. Um, I I don't know of anyone else who comes remotely close. Um, Like the number of people I've put on their first deer and taken them and taught them to shoot. Like, you know, we're talking... 50 new people every year, probably hmm. in the That's last incredible. 10 years. I mean, hundreds that I've taken out. Um, and the only reason that's possible for me to handle that volume is because I'm getting paid. You know, yeah. if it was just, yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise I would just have to be like some retired guy who, or just somebody who's rich and doesn't need to work. Um, but I don't think we have enough of those. No. And the truth, and the truth is that, all in, you know, for someone to pay you a few hundred bucks to go out for a day. I mean, hunting can be an expensive deal too. You know, it's like, it's not only a steep learning curve, but if you don't have the gear, you know, you're, you're helping people in many ways. So yeah, no, I, I, I think it's fantastic. It's, it's going to take all types, like you say. So, uh, I appreciate what you're doing and, um, yeah, it'd be fun to hunt together someday. Maybe. Would well, thanks, Fisher, man. I really appreciate you coming on and taking a chance to come on the podcast and and talk about this. I I I love what you're doing, and I hope you keep doing it. And I hope you land that big breakout role. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. All right, it's great to be here. Thanks. Mm-hmm.